Good morning. All right, this is a book that my wife got from the library. Um, this was, I don't maybe maybe it was a month ago that my wife was taking our three children and they were going to the library. She was going to check out, you know, get each one of them to check out a book at the library. And I think she popped her head into the bedroom and said, hey, would you like me to pick up a book for you while I'm at the library? And I knew that she was asking me, like, just for a fun book, like, is there a fiction book that you'd like to read or something like that? And I said, yeah, yeah, you know what I like. You know, just, you know, give me, give me what I would like. Um, you know the kind of books I read, you know, like I get a John Grisham book maybe, or, a, you know, some book about law, or a book about, you know, a mystery book, something like that. And so she said, okay. So she went, came back, and she did a good, she, she followed my instructions exactly. She got me this book. So she checked it out. Now, the name of this book is Murder on the Orient Express, and the author is Agatha Christie. So um, it's, it's a mystery book. It was exactly what I said to her. Would you give me a mystery book? She did. So I got it, and I started to read it. Um, and I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with it in the sense that I know that Agatha Christie is a very like, huge popular writer. I was aware of that, and I think this is her most popular book. Um, in other words, if you'd asked me a year ago, name an Agatha Christie book, I think this is the only one that I could have named. Um, this is one of her big ones. It's, it's been made into a movie. I think maybe it's been made into a movie multiple times. So um, I started to read it, and right? I'm like, okay, here we go. This is going to be good to know what this is, what's going on here. And so I started reading it, and I got to about chapter 2, and I gave up. Um, I found this book to be very difficult to read. Okay? And the reason that I found it difficult to read, actually there are multiple reasons I found it difficult to read. I'll, the first one is real obvious in like, almost the first page. The copyright on this book is 1933. So that means this book was written like, during or before 1933. So the book is almost 100 years old. Culture has changed quite a lot in a hundred years. There are things going on in this book, there are concepts in this book, there's like a culture that this book was written in that I am unfamiliar with because it's been so long since the book was written. Also, this book was written on a different continent. I believe uh, Agatha Christie is um, British. So the, the context is Europe, like Europe. And the Orient Express is a train that goes from one side of Europe to the other side of Europe. And so there's going to be geography that's mentioned in this book that I'm not familiar with. I don't know Europe. I've been there twice, but both times when I was a kid. Um, also, there's just, I, there's things in here I'm unfamiliar with, like train travel. I've never been on a train. I mean, I've been on a train like at a theme park, but I've never traveled from one city to another city by train. I don't understand, you know, sleeper cars and dining cars and what, you know, what those kind of trains are like. I've never been on one. Um, there are words in here, like English words in here, that I don't know what they mean because I've never used them before or read them before. In the first couple of chapters, they start talking about, they use this word birth several times. You need to get a birth, first class birth. Have you reserved a birth? And I was like, I, I don't know what that is. It's spelled B-E-R-T-H. And so as I read it, I started to come to the conclusion, I thought, just judging by the way it was used, that it's a sleeping compartment in a train. Um, and then I Googled it and found out that was wrong. Um, it's actually a bed. So a, a sleeping compartment could have multiple berths in it. So I'm going through and reading, going, okay. And, and then not only am I unfamiliar with the time period and the culture and the continent it's from and some of the words and the train travel part, um, but there is a character in here who speaks French. So there are French words in here when he talks, and she doesn't translate what he's saying. And so I'm sitting here reading, going, what is this guy even saying? I'm, ge I'm guessing that in 1930s England... The average British person back then probably had a rudimentary understanding of French. And I'm reading through here, and I mean, there was one place where I think I knew I know what it was. I think the person says, merci, monsieur, and I know that means thank you, sir. But then there are other ones where, I mean, this is like a whole, like a whole bunch of words, a whole bunch of French words. I don't know what that even means. 
And so I'm going through and going, I'm not familiar with the language, I'm not familiar with the other language, I'm not familiar with the, you know, the, the culture and the time period and the, what the book is about and the geography. And, and so at some point I was laying in my bed reading it, and I thought to myself, okay, I think I could do this. I think if I just struggle through it, if I just read and keep reading, knowing I'm not going to understand everything, but keep reading, knowing I'm not going to totally get it all, but keep reading and keep reading and keep reading, by the time I get to the end, I will understand it better and better. As I work through it, I will start to figure out what these things are and what's going on. And once I finish the whole book, I'll probably have a better understanding of the stuff. And then once I've read the whole book through once, I will be able to go back and read it a second time from the beginning. And the second time through, I'll probably understand it. And then I realized I would rather read this book zero times than twice. <laughs> so I set it to the side. Now, here's my concern for some of you in this room. I think there are probably some of you in this room who have done that with the Bible. The same thing that happened to me happened to you with the Bible. You picked up this book and said, I love Jesus, and here we go. I'm going to read this thing. And you went, whoa, this is very hard. And this was written a long time ago. And they're talking about things that are very far removed from me culturally. And this was written in a whole different place in the world with very different geography. And I don't know the difference between a Jerusalem and a Jericho and a Decapolis and a Damascus. I don't know this stuff. And there's words in here. There are English words in here that I don't understand. And then occasionally, there are not English words in here. It's like, why are they throwing those in there, right? Selah. Oh, great. I don't even know, I don't even know what the, the, these words aren't even English words. And so I'm reading through here, and maybe you were at that point that you said, yeah, like, I, I don't get it. This is, this is too hard to understand, and you set it aside. And this is what happened when you did that. I think probably, probably for many people in this room, there are probably some of you that you set it aside, but you didn't set your faith aside. You continued to believe. You continued to love Jesus. You continued to want to serve him, and you kept coming to church, and, you kept, and the pastor got up and said stuff from the Bible, and you're like, well, I understand what he's saying, so that's, I guess that's how I'm going to get this. Like, I can't read it myself, but I'll show up and I'll listen to his stuff and that'll be fine, right? And so I'm still in and I'm still going to, I'm going to listen and I, I still believe. But I, I think I might read it zero times rather than twice. Or, or maybe it'd take way more than twice. Maybe it'd take a whole bunch of times. And so what I wanted to say to you, like as a pastor, to those of you who are in this room and are followers of Jesus Christ, I think that not reading the Bible is probably a much bigger deal than not reading Mid-Murder on the Orient Express, okay? In fact, take the word probably out. I think that not reading the Bible is a bigger deal because the message of this book is so much more vital to your life than the message of this book. And so what the purpose of this series is, is to help you with that, to help you to be able to understand and read this book better. Um, instead, this will be an unusual series for us here at a church because instead of doing what we normally do, instead of teaching verse by verse through a book of the Bible or even topic by topic through the Bible, um, I would like to spend a few weeks talking about the Bible in order to help you understand it better. I would like to, if, I, if, if God will use me to do this, I would like to demystify for you a difficult book. So this is the outline for the series. If the Lord permits, my plan is to do a six-week series on this, and this is what we're going to do. Week one is on translation. How did we get it from the language it was in to the language it's in now? Um, interpretation. Okay, I'm reading my English Bible. What do the words mean, and how can I know what they mean? 
Week three, Old Testament. What are the Old Testament books? How can we understand them? How do they relate to each other? What's the story there? Week four, New Testament. What are the New Testament books? How are they different from one another? What's the story there? Week five, Jesus' words and other words. So what are the words that Jesus said? And then what about the people who are not Jesus, but they talked in the Bible? What do we do with their words? And then week six, the law and the gospel. We have this, in the Bible, there are laws. There is, this is what you should do. And then there's the gospel. Jesus has come to save us. How do those two things work together? And what do they have to do with our life? So that's my plan for the next six weeks. And so today we are on week one, translation. Um, Let me start off by saying this. I want to be clear. I am not a translator. I only know one language. Okay, I'm using it right now. Okay, I only know English. I know English pretty well, but that's the one I know. I took Spanish one and Spanish two in high school, and I took Spanish in college. Um, but I don't remember most of what I learned there. I only know English. I um, my seminary background is that I applied and was accepted to, and and it started attending a seminary. I think it was 12 years ago. I was living in Leesburg at the time, and I was driving down to Orlando. So the name of the seminary was Reformed Theological Seminary. So I was a student there. I took, I think I was, think I was there for three semesters. Um, and then we moved up to Ocala to start Good News Church. And at that time, I'm so working on this master's degree, but then I um, am trying to plant Good News Church. And I'm married to my wife and want to be a good husband to her. And, and I have two small children at that time. And there came a point where I just thought, I, I can't do all of these things. Like, I can't be a good husband and a good father and a good seminary student and a good church planter. And so one of them had to go. And so seminary was the one that had to go. And so I, I dropped out of seminary in order to start a church. That is an unusual, not the way it usually happens, but that's how it worked. And now you know. So the, what the, during those three semesters that I was there, I did not take ancient Hebrew. I did not take ancient Greek. If that bothers you, like, now you know, and you can go find a church with a real pastor. But... <laughs> But the reason I'm saying this is, this sermon is coming to you from me, and it is not coming from a scholar, okay? I'm not delivering to this to you as a translation scholar. I am speaking to you as a normal Christian, talking to normal Christians, and I want to explain to you some basics about Bible translation so that you can understand your Bible better when you go to read it, so you can understand how it got to to us the way it is. So let me start off with something basic that you do not have to have a master's degree to know, and that is this. This book was not originally written in English. You need to know that. If you want to understand the Bible, you need to know you're reading the translation of something. Okay? God does not drop Bibles out of the sky onto every country in the language of that country. Right? It was originally written in another language, translated into English. It was actually written into, um, it was written in two, primarily two languages, technically three. The Old Testament's written in Hebrew, the New Testament's written in Greek, not modern-day Hebrew and modern Greek. Ancient Hebrew for the Old Testament, ancient Greek for the New Testament. There is a little bit of the Old Testament written in Aramaic, a couple of, like a few chapters, I think, of Ezra, a few chapters of Daniel, and I think maybe one single verse of Jeremiah are in Aramaic. Other than that, um, the Old Testament is written in ancient Hebrew, and the New Testament is written in ancient Greek. So because that is true, when we read the Bible, we are actually reading... English translations of the Bible, at least most of us who are in this room, when we go to the Christian bookstore or Walmart or wherever and you buy a Bible, you're reading an English translation. Another thing you need to know is there is more than one way to translate words. There is more than one way to translate words from one language into another language. 
Um, so I'm going to go ahead and use an illustration here from a language that I am a little bit familiar with um, other than English, and that is Spanish. So in Spanish, I remember learning this. The word de in Spanish, um, the English equivalent of that word is of. Most of the time when you see de in Spanish literature or when Spanish speakers are talking, it means of. Nada is the word for nothing. Most of the time, the word nada, when it's used, it would be translated into the English word nothing. So there are a lot of times if you saw de and nada in, in, on a Spanish document or when a Spanish-speaking person is talking, if they say de nada, sometimes it means of nothing. However, if those words are used in that order in response to the word gracias, it means you're welcome. Isn't that weird? This word is of not your. And this word is nothing, not welcome. But the way you translate this, in some cases, is of nothing, because that's what the words mean. But there are certain situations where someone says, muchas gracias, and you say, you're welcome. By the way, thank you, Melissa, because I, I, I checked with her before I preached this, just to make sure. I have, I have a friend of mine that speaks Spanish, and I just ran this past her. So anyway, she said everything I told you was true. Um, so isn't that weird, though? Isn't it weird that, th that this, these, wor this, these words can mean of nothing or they can mean you're welcome? The reason I say that is I want you to understand different contexts require different translations. It's not just simply, well, this word and this is the way you do that. No, words, um, you can translate things. Um, there's more than one way to translate words. You can translate words literally or you can translate like, what, it, what it means to the person. Um, another thing that's important to understand is that languages have synonyms, which you know this, right, because our language has them. So you can be translating from one language into another language, and, and you're trying to figure out, okay, what's the word I'm going to use to translate this word into this one? And the language that you're translating into might have two words that mean that. It might have three or four or five words that mean that. You know that because you know English well enough to know that like speedy and fast and quick all mean the same thing. So you could have a word in one language, and then you're translating it, and there are three or four or five correct translations of that word. And so that's what I want you to understand. What, what all of this means is there is more than one way to translate something. There is more than one correct way to translate something. There is more than one correct way to translate the Bible. Because of that, there are multiple Bible translations. So I'm going to put up here on the screen for you, and by me, I mean the people in the back, are going to put up for you um, a list of, these are just some popular Bible translations, people that translate the Bible from the original language into English. The NIV is the abbreviation for New International Version. Many of you have heard of the KJV, the King James Version. ESV is the English Standard Version. Lots of people use that. NLT is particularly readable. Um, NLT is New Living Translation. The NASB, the New American Standard Bible, very popular. The one that I use is the HCSB, the Holman Christian Standard Bible. There are multiple right ways to translate the Bible. There are multiple translations of the Bible, and these are not the only six. Okay, I just picked these I, because I use that one, and those five are really big. You know, a lot of people use those. But there are, I don't know how many, dozens, I think dozens of translations of the Bible into English. So, this is important to understand. Knowing that the Bible has tra been translated multiple times, multiple ways, multiple versions, knowing that there is more than one correct way to translate something is important. One of the reasons it's important is imagine someone comes along, like let's call this person the contrarian, okay, or the, the, maybe this is a person who is skeptical of Christianity, and they might say, oh, you believe the Bible? Which one? Right? 
that, that they might go, you Christians go around and you say things like you believe the Bible or you say things like, well, that's not right. Well, how do you know it's not right? Because that's not what the Bible says. Or you Christians will say things like, well, this is what you should do or this is the way we're supposed to behave or these are the things that we're supposed to say. How do you know that's what we're supposed to say? Because the Bible says it. And they could easily say back, which Bible? Did you not know there's multiple Bibles? Right? You could have a group of people over here reading one book and you got people over here reading another book, right? They got a different one. And you all are sitting around going, yeah, we live our lives by, by the Bible. Didn't you know that there's not even a, the Bible? Like, didn't you even know that, right? Which Bible do you believe? So we as Christians, we need to know what to do with that. And then it might not just be a skeptical person. It could be someone that's not skeptical at all. Imagine someone is a brand new Christian, okay? Maybe there's some of you in this room who are pretty new Christians. And you and, and if you're not a new Christian, you can, if you can, remember back to when you first became a Christian. Remember this moment when you, um, you're like, okay, I love Jesus. I'm going to go get me a Bible. And then you went to the Christian bookstore and you went, oh no. And there was, there was a wall of Bibles. Do you remember that? Shelf after shelf after shelf of different translations and different types and different themes. And you went there and you went, Oh no, what do I do? This is way more difficult than I thought. They made it sound like I could just go get a Bible. And there's all these different Bibles. How do I know which one to get? How do I know which one is the right one? Do you remember when you were panicking about that in the store? Right? And you're looking and you're going, I don't know, because this one's $19.95 and this one's $29.95. But I mean, I don't want to save 10 bucks and end up with the one that's going to cause me to like sacrifice goats in my backyard and throw my children into a ditch. Like that's not worth 10 bucks. Like I want to get the right one. Right? Remember how you were concerned about that? And then when you looked around, you noticed not only are these different translations, there's different themed Bibles. There's the thank you for being the best mom in the world Bible and the law enforcement officer's Bible and the chicken soup for the soul Bible and the firefighter's Bible. Have you seen these? Yeah, this is for real. I mean, I made, I made up one of those. Three of those are real. <laughs> so what do you do with that? What does that mean, the firefighter's Bible? And I don't, I don't know what people perceive when they see that stuff. I sure hope there aren't non-Christians out there that think that we are like adding firefighters to the story, right? That Jesus is there dying on the cross and there's a guy with a ladder coming through, right, in order to make it relevant to a fireman. I hope people, I, I will let you know that is not what it is. You can buy a firefighter's Bible, I can guarantee you that's not what it is. The differences in those themed Bibles, Law Enforcement Officer's Bible versus Chicken Soup for the Soul Bible, the difference in, the, in those Bibles is primarily the cover. Okay? The cover is going to look different. Law Enforcement Officer's Bible is going to have a thin blue line or it's going to have a big silver badge on the front or something like that. And the you know, Happy Mother's Day Bible is going to have a flowers on it or the doilies or something pink. Okay? So the cover is going to be different the way they package it. And then once you open it up, the part that is God's word is the same. Like, if the HCSB firefighter's Bible is the same as the HCSB uh, law enforcement officer's Bible, okay? But what's in the margins is different. That is, a lot of times in some of these Bibles, they will have um, either a big space or a line or something where they clearly mark, this is like the Bible, and then here's the extra notes that are about chicken soup or about, you know, whatever it is, right? And, but, the, but the actual text of the Bible is the same in all the themed Bibles, so I think that's important for you to know. And, and one, one concern I have with some of these themed Bibles is that, I, I, is that people might get the impression that our faith is so malleable 
that there's like a, a, a different version of it for law enforcement officers than for firefighters. There's a different version of it for nurses than for bakers, you know. And that's not true. The truth is the truth. The way of salvation is the same for everyone. The way to understand that you, is, you are a sinner and you need God, the way to know how you can escape judgment for your sin, the way you can know what God requires of you or what he's like or how he loves you or how you can live with him forever, like all of that is the same, whether you're a cop or whether you're a nurse, even if the nurses don't get their own Bible, which I Googled and it turns out they do, just so you know. <laughs> So the different themed Bibles are not different Bibles in regard to the actual words. God's truth it does not really vary from person to person. So the different themed Bibles are not really different from one another when it comes to the Bible part. However, the translations are. The different translations actually have different words. Like the words that are in there, like this verse says this, the words are different depending on the way that it was translated. So what do we do with that? Because we're now back to... Well, which one's the right one? How, 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 how can we believe the Bible if there's all these different translations? So I want to just explain to you a little bit about translation. First, I want to show you, I'm going to show you two verses um, in different translations this morning. The first one I want to show you is Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. And I want you to see that sometimes the different translation choices are actually not that different. It seems to me, even someone who doesn't know ancient Greek, apparently translators sometimes come to a verse and it's pretty simple to translate because everybody comes to the exact same conclusion. This is Hebrews 13, verse 8. The NIV chose to translate this verse. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. The New Living Translation translates it, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The ESV translates it, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. The KJV, King James Version, translates it, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. And then the Holman Christian Standard Bible decided to go with this translation. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, why is that? You want to know why? Because that's what it means. And they all said the same thing because that's what they're doing. They're translating, and this is what the verse says. Like, this is the English equivalent of what it says. They all came up with the exact same thing. Now, I say exact. That's not technically true. They, there are actually slight differences if you, if you pay really close attention. Okay? The Holman Christian Standard and the New Living Translation both chose to put a comma where an and is in the other translations. The other translations chose to go a little more literally. In the, like, it looks like in the original document, Greek, there were two ands in there. Yesterday and today and forever. However, in modern English, we don't put ands between every single thing in a series. So for modern speakers, like the way we speak, they chose to put a comma, because that's usually what we do, rather than saying and, 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 and every time. But the difference there has nothing to do with the meaning of the verse comma or and, you still get that there are these three things, that Jesus Christ is the same. Also, if you look at the King James Version, and this one's interesting, if you're unfamiliar with it, the King James Version is a 400-year-old English translation, and the English language has changed quite a bit in 400 years, and so that's why it's one of the harder translations to read. Um, but what you notice with this verse, and I thought this was interesting because I didn't know it until last week, that back when the King James was translated, the word to and day were two separate words, same thing for for and ever. Like, they treated the word to and day like we treat the word this day, right? Like, two separate words. Apparently, 400 years ago, those were two separate words, and then sometime over the 400 years, just, we just jammed all that together into one word. So we look back at this old one, and we see spaces there that aren't in our modern translations. But again, it means the very same thing. 
So we have different translations. They're slightly different. They mean the same thing. Now, you might say, okay, Mara, that's good, but did you just pick a verse that's like really easy? Like, did you pick a verse that really sounds the same in all the translations? Yes, I did. Okay. <laughs> well, can you show us one where there's like a substantial difference between the way they chose to do the translations? Yes, I will. We're going to do Amos chapter 4, verse 6. Not all of them are this easy to translate. So let's look at a verse where there are translation differences that are more substantial. We're going to start with the ESV. Okay? English Standard Version translates Amos chapter 4, verse 6 this way. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and a lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Now, what does that verse mean? If we look at this verse in just this one translation without looking at the context, we might go, okay, well, obviously we know it means that the Lord is declaring something. And the thing that he's declaring is that he has given them something. He's given them two things, okay? Lack of bread, cleanness of teeth. But what does that mean, okay? Well, at first glance, cleanness of teeth sure seems to be a positive thing, right? Cleanness of teeth, that's what I want. I want clean teeth. Anybody else here want clean teeth? Yeah. So it sounds like God gave them good dental care. That's how it starts in all your cities. And then lack of bread. Now, lack of bread doesn't sound good like cleanness of teeth does. Lack of bread sounds like something bad. But maybe it's not. Who knows? Especially nowadays. I mean, pff, but with all the like keto diet and napkins and low carb and gluten free, like maybe lack of bread is fantastic. Now they're just eating ribs and steak and chicken all the time. And so if all you had were this one translation and you didn't read it in context, you might go, well, I guess God gave him good dental care and a low carb diet, right? <laughs> but even if you only had just this one translation and you kept reading, you would figure out it can't mean that because as you keep reading, you see it's actually God is judging them. God's wrath or God's discipline is being poured out on the people. And so if you read the rest of this chapter, you, you'll see that it talks about how water's not falling from the sky. I think it talks about the crops not growing. I know that there's a part just a few verses later that talk about people will have to leave one city in order to go to another city to get water. And so what you figure out is whatever cleanness of teeth and lack of bread means, it's not good. But what does it mean specifically? Okay, now I'd like to put the version of the Bible that I use, my translation, HCSB, right here. Here's how... HCSB translate this verse. I gave you absolutely nothing to eat in all your cities, a shortage of food in all your communities, yet you did not return to me. This is the Lord's declaration. It's a different way to translate it. And there in this verse are some minor differences, some parts that are no difference at all, and then some parts that are kind of major differences. So let's start with the minor differences. HCSB ends with the words, this is the Lord's declaration. ESV ends with the words, declares the Lord. They're different words, but they mean the same thing, all right? So, so not, not a big difference there. Different words, they mean the same thing. Let's go up. The next thing it says is, yet you did not return to me, and the ESV translates it, yet you did not return to me. Identical, exact same words there. Let's go up one more. Ah, here's where the big differences are. This one says shortage of food. This one says lack of bread. And what you can start to see here, even if you don't know ancient Hebrew, is apparently... The Hebrews used words like bread, and so the ESV translated it into the word that it is, bread. It's the word for bread. But sometimes they use the word as an emblem, meaning more than just that food. We do this in English as well, but I don't know if we do it quite as much as Hebrew people did. That, that, that lack of bread doesn't just mean like, oh, we don't have bread, let's eat cake. Lack of bread is like lack of food. So, so that's what it literally says, but HCSB has to go ahead and just said what it means, shortage of food. And then you come to the big one, right? What is cleanness of teeth? Oh, apparently, cleanness of teeth is a Hebrew figure of speech to mean famine. 
cleanness of teeth is a Hebrew figure of speech. Like the reason their teeth are clean is not because they have good dental care. It's because they're not eating anything. So the ESV translated it as it is. Clean, you got words in there that mean clean teeth. HCSB translated what, it, what the figure of speech means, right? Absolutely nothing to eat. So you have two different translation philosophies here. And there are names for this stuff if you care. Um, the translation philosophy of formal equivalence is the way that the ESV went with this verse. Formal equivalence is when you translate something as best as you can, word for word. Okay, you try to be literal. This is the word they used. This is the word we did. That's, this is kind of like de nada of nothing. Okay? The other kind of translation, and it's really on a spectrum. It's not really just two types. But the other, another type of translation is called dynamic equivalence. Dynamic equivalence would be when you translate something rather than word for word, but more thought for thought. Right? And that's a little bit more like you're welcome with Denata, right? The, the, the thought here is nothing to eat. So you look at these two verses and you realize they use different words. But do, these, do they use different words because these two Bibles are teaching two different things? No, they're not. They're two ways of translating the very same thing. Um, now, one thing I like about the HCSB, and I'm just going to let you know this, one of the reasons that I like this translation so much is that when I look at it in my Bible, just so you know, this is actually not as what is shown. This is what is shown in my Bible, okay? So, and this is true if you buy your own paper copy of it, or even if you download a version of it on the tablet, this is actually what you'll see. And, and it never shows up here, like whenever I preach out of it, the marginal notes don't ever show up. But this is what is actually there when I open my Bible and read it. I gave you absolutely nothing to eat, B. And then you go down to the margin and it says, literally, you cleanness of teeth. I gave you cleanness of teeth. In other words, when the Holman Christian Standard translates something, and they, they do this, I think, thousands of times throughout the pages of the Bible, when they translate it in a dynamic way, they put the formal equivalents in the margins so that you know both things. This is what it literally said. This is what we're saying it means in English. To me, <laughs> that's the best of both worlds. That's why I like this translation so much, that you would see, help me understand what it means and also tell me like, word for word what it said. And I, I tell you this, I, I tell you it's my favorite translation and it's the best of both worlds because that's true. I don't sell these Bibles. I don't get a commission. I don't know the people that like, produce the HCSB. So I mean, I don't care. You don't have to buy your own copy of it. It's nothing, nothing to me. But I'm just letting you know that's why I prefer this translation. I really like the mix of dynamic equivalence and formal equivalence that's there. Um, so... Now I've shown you, I've shown you Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. I've showed you Amos chapter 4, verse 6. So that you can see that different Bibles translate different words in different ways. Okay? And I'm not even saying that Amos 4, 6 is like the, like the most substantial translation difference that is found in all of the English Bibles. I'm sure that it's not. I'm sure that there's a more substantial difference out there. But I just wanted to give you an understanding of how different English translations work, why, the, why they are written the way that they are, and what, if, what some of those differences are like. Now, you might ask, okay, great. Why is this important? I'm just a regular Christian, Mario. Why is this important for me to know? And I think, well, actually, I don't even know how many reasons there are of why this is important, but there's two that were important to me. I think there are two reasons why I wanted to tell you this this morning. And the first one is this. I wanted you to know this because I want you to know that different translations of the Bible are not wildly different books. This whole idea of how can you trust the Bible because these people have a different Bible than these people. No, they have a different translation of the Bible into English than these other people. They're not wildly different books. I had a conversation with a non-Christian guy, um, I don't know, a few months ago, and... 
I don't remember what he said to cause the conversation to go in this direction, but I remember I said to him, I said, it is not as if there was a Christian or a group of Christians and they're stranded on a desert island. Okay, just imagine you got a Christian or a group of Christians stranded on a desert island and all they have is an ESV Bible. And then over here on a different desert island, you got a group of Christians and they're stranded over there and all they have is a New American Standard Bible. Okay, it is not as if these two groups of people, when you come back 10 years later, are going to have created two different religions, worshiping two different gods in two different ways. I mean, I guess theoretically that's possible because humans do nutso things with anything. You could, have, you, you could have two identical books and they could still, somebody, some weirdo on one of the islands could do something with it. But I'm just saying the difference wouldn't be because these two books are so different that they lead you to worship two different gods or two different ways. Like the, the two books are just not that different from one another. Anyway, so when I said that, I said, so it's not like they come up with two different religions. The, the non-Christian guy said back to me, oh, I thought that's how it was. And I, I remember thinking at some point, like, that's a shame. Like, I wish we had been more clear on that, that the different translations are not truly different books. And so Christians can say, I believe the Bible, and that's close enough. The other thing I wanted you to know is different translations don't make it harder to understand the original. They make it easier. Different translations don't make it hard. For those of us who are English speakers only, um, which is funny. Someone told me a joke in the first service. I'm going to throw this in here just for fun. They said if you, someone that knows two languages is called bilingual, and someone who knows three languages is called trilingual, and they said, you know what you call someone that knows one language? An American. Um, <laughs> so um, for those of us who only know one language, this idea that there's multiple translations, and so how can you possibly trust the Bible? It's been translated. You've probably heard people say this, right? It's been translated and translated and translated and translated. How can we possibly know what it means? No, the fact that that has happened in our language so many times helps us better understand it, not worse. That's better for us. Um, let me, this idea that it's been translated so many times that we can't know what it means, I want to read to you a quote from this book. This is um, a book of essays on the sufficiency of Scripture. One of the, author, one of the essays in here was written by a guy named Vody Bauckham. Vody Bauckham wrote an essay in here called Why You Can Believe the Bible. It is a great essay, but I am going to just read just the part of it that's relevant to what we're talking about. Vody Bauckham says this. He says, I'll mention one other objection I often encounter with people attempting to dismiss the reliability and historicity of the Bible. You have likely heard someone claim that they can't believe the Bible because it has been translated so many times. What they're saying is that God's word has lost the true intent of its message over time. Like an ancient game of telephone, we can't possibly know what it originally said, much less meant. You've heard what telephone is. You whisper into one person's ear and whisper into another person's and it's something crazy at the end. He says this, It bothers me a great deal that there are people who claim to be educated and intelligent that continue to put forward this argument. It bothers me that Christians don't laugh them out of the room. To put it simply, the people who make this argument are either ignorant or evil or both. Nobody really believes that Bible translation actually resembles a game of telephone with the message slowly diluted and lost over time. Bible translators don't simply work off the most recent previous translation. They go back to the original languages. And if you bother to learn those languages, you can check your translation against the originals. Or you can simply invest in software that will do it for you. In fact, it has never been easier to thoroughly test modern translations against the documents they claim to translate. With the translation capabilities we have today, 
There is nowhere to hide inaccuracies or illegitimate insertions. Such foolish objections to the trustworthiness of Scripture are really just attempts to circumvent the fact that the Bible was written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. Rebellious hearts concoct fantasies and excuses to cloud the issue and distract from the reality that the potentially falsifiable claims in Scripture were never falsified. And I think that's a very helpful quote, especially the understanding that what you are reading when you read an English Bible is not a translation of a translation of a translation of a translation, right? These are translations from the original source. And actually, when I say they're from the original source, that's technically an oversimplification because they're not. We don't have the original source. I don't know if you know that. We don't have the original documents. Like, we don't have the scroll that Paul wrote the book of Galatians on, okay? Um, we don't have that anymore. What we have is copies of it. We have copies of it. We have copies of copies of it. We have copies of copies of copies of it. There are hundreds, maybe thousands of manuscripts out there, ancient manuscripts, things that were handwritten from the time period that the Bible was written all the way up until the time period of the printing press, of people that wrote out copies and copies and copies of Scripture so that other people would know what the Bible said. And so even though the actual scroll that Paul wrote Ephesians on is long gone, you can take all of these manuscripts and put them together to figure out what the original said. Even if a scribe made a mistake, like not all of them all made the same mistake at the same point, right? So you can put all of the copies together and figure out what the original said um, with a great degree of certainty for most of all the stuff. And so you, what you end up, I don't have time to really explain all this. Um, we, uh, I did a, a sermon here, I think it was last year, um, that where I explained like this for like 45 minutes. So if you want to know more about this topic that I'm on right now, um, you can go to our church's website, and uh, the series is Gospel of Mark. If you go to our Gospel of Mark series, and if you go to the final sermon in that series, I don't remember the number, but if you just go to the last sermon in the Gospel of Mark series, I did a whole sermon on um, like textual criticism and manuscript evidence and all that. But for now, I'll just say the simple part, which is, okay, so you take all these manuscripts and bring them together. We go, okay, here's, we now have this Hebrew document or this Greek document. And then they translate that into English. And what I'm saying is, once you, like if multiple people do that, multiple scholars over multiple time periods and multiple places are translating this into English, you end up with multiple translations. And when you read them, it's not harder to understand what the original said. It's easier. I have, trying to understand a verse, I have gone onto like biblehub.com and read that verse in like 10 different translations all in a row. Read it, read it, read it, read it again. And by the time I'm done and I'm reading all the different synonyms that different people used as they were trying to translate this, this Greek word verse or this Hebrew verse into English. By the time I've read it 10 times, I'm not more confused. I'm less confused. I'm understanding it. I'm getting the gist of what, this, what the original said better because I see all these different synonyms of all the different ways that these translators tried to help us understand what the original said. So, that's what I wanted you to know. That's what I wanted to teach you this morning. And you might say, okay, Mario, thanks for all that. But this series is titled, How to Read the Bible. And you have not taught us how to read the Bible yet. To which I say back, yep, sorry. <laughs> that is the nature of a six-part series. Today was an introduction. I wanted to start the series off by answering the question, how do we know that we're even reading the right Bible? And then once we've settled that issue, okay, now what I want to do is next week talk about interpretation. If the Lord permits, next week I would like to get to the, okay, now we've got an English Bible and I'm reading English words, now how do I interpret it? How do I understand what the English words mean? That's the plan for next week. 
I hope you come to hear it. I'm, I'm excited about it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. You have not left us in the dark. You now have not left us wondering what you are like or who you are or what you've done. And so we thank you for that. I pray you'd help us to be a congregation of people who understand your word. I pray that you would use me and my words and whatever happens over these next six weeks that we would understand your word better. But we, we worship you and thank you that there, is a, there even is a word that you chose to speak to us. Thank you that there is a word in the sense of the, the Bible and thank you that there is a word in the sense that you sent Jesus to reveal yourself to us in, in person and that he rescued us. Because I think if all you did was give us your word like, like a collection of words, we couldn't be saved. We would be sinful people who read the words and go, wow, we're, we're, we're not good enough but that you would send us the words that say we're not good enough and then send us the Savior who would save us. So thank you. Thank you that you have not left us in the dark. You have not left us on our own. And so we worship you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.